Hi, I'm your host, Tom DeSavia. Join me as I interview guests from music and entertainment from around the world about what they're up to right now. Stay tuned, because we're gone in 30 minutes. Hey, everybody, it's Tom DeSavia, and you're on episode two of Gone in 30 Minutes uh, today. Our guest is the inimitable, inimitable, inimitable gentleman, <laughs> who's the leg of popular music, the uh, the king of pop culture, uh, Mr. Martin Page. Welcome, Martin. Thank you very much, Tom. I, I like that interview. You said it three times, so I feel even more important. That's how we, this is live, really. No, oh, I can tell. I'm going like, to f up a lot during this for you, but <laughs> uh, it, just everyone. This is only thirty minutes, so I literally don't have time to give you Martin's entire uh, bag through. But he has written and or worked with everyone from <gasps> Robbie Williams, <laughs> Phil Collins, Bernie Taupin, Diane Warren, Hal David, Elton John, Barbara Streisand, and Josh Groban, the Commodores. Robbie Robertson, Tom Jones, Philip Bailey, Maurice Wright, Go West, John Waite, Cher, Grace Slick, Peter Wolf. I, it, that's a quarter of the list. I had the good pleasure of having a casual meeting with Martin a few months ago, right before the whole zombie apocalypse. And uh, as you said, the rest of the world disappeared around us and we fell in love. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. It was a great meeting. I think we were in a room with two other people that were supposed to be doing business and they didn't exist once you and I got started. It was fantastic. It was, it, was, it was truly one of those wonderful conversations that we yeah. uh, just were on the same wave, wavelength about everything from art to politics to uh, lunch. Our history of music and what we loved growing up. Well, and that's ridiculous. Every time I would say something to you like Prince Buster reggae, you go, oh, yes. And he did the Ten Commandments. And I go, wow, that's uh, yeah, we, had, it, we were definitely grooving. It was. We went to pub rock. We. I think. I think the 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 actual moment of the hearts coming out of my eyes was in a, <laughs> a low part of the conversation. And then but, we danced. And then we danced and we sang. And it was lovely. And I'm so glad to have you here. I Thank know you. in 30 minutes we're not going to have enough time. So let's consider this your first visit. Okay. Um, but I want to get into as we're doing with this show. What are you doing right now? What's 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 life like there, Paige? Well, Matt? it's uh, you know for for a songwriter, you know, I was talking to my friends about this. I don't think it's quite. I mean, it's terrible, but we are tend tend to be solitary creatures anyway. And I work. I, my studio is back there, right behind me in my house. So I've been making records at home for a long time, and. Um, Although I feel it, because I was actually recording with a band when this happened, and we all sort of backed off and ran away, um, I do feel a little bit like this is the way I live anyway. Um, it's only when I go out and I see people wearing masks, and I have to take notice of it, because I'm very much a studio home-based guy. I've been working on an album that I've been working on for three years. Uh, in, in fact, it's really focused me, because... About three years ago, the musicians that played on my first solo record in the House of Stone and Light, they all arrived in L.A. about three years ago. And uh, my drummer for that band was Jimmy Copley, and he was ill in London. But we all decided we're going to make this record together. So um, we, I wrote 10 songs and all the musicians dropped into the house and we made it. I must, I'm not just saying this, but it feels to me... Uh, a very special record because the players came around me again and for the last few years I've been doing sort of one-man band albums uh, so but I it was a, a daunting project and there were live drums horns singers from South Africa Zulu choirs and they got bigger and bigger and I didn't really want to mix it I was like oh my god this is gonna be quite tough so when the virus came I, I it made a pledge I said now I've got to dig down 
and mix this album. So I'm eight songs into the 10 and it's really focused me, really focused me to do a project that in a way I know is my best work, but I'm also quite scared of it. So it's, in cool. one way, it's been a good uh, motivator for me. That's good. Well, I mean, that goes right into, I've said often, I don't um, trust people who aren't afraid of their own work or scared. If there's not a level of complete paralyzing insecurity, I don't trust the songwriter. <laughs> So um, another reason I like you. Anyone who That's says, oh, no, true. I, 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 I wasn't nervous at all. I'm like, okay, not, not buying No, it. no, I, I must admit, I thought, oh, my God, I've got 38 tracks of live drums, 60 tracks of Zulu singers, and it's all really wonderful. Now it's down to me to finish the job and then let all these people that have worked on the album feel like I've done a good job. I mean, the, uh, PJ Moore from Blue Nile, the keyboard player, he's okay. been yeah. sending me stuff across from Glasgow. Um, Russell Broom from Canada. I mean, it was when I suddenly linked into Dropbox and just thought, oh, my goodness, all these musicians can send me stuff. But, uh, you know, it's easy to, to do the recording. It's fun. You know, I was just, just thinking about this. You know, when you're experimenting, and I tend to let players do their thing, then I comp it and compile it after. It's This is the time when you're pulling teeth a little bit. You're like, ah, we're right up against it now. I have to organize. And be before that, it's like, yes, let's do another two tracks from Glasgow. It's all freeform. Then all of a sudden, it's like you've got to finish this off properly, you know. Has this whole experience made you more disciplined, for lack of a better word? Do you feel you have more of a work day now because you're inside or... Yeah, you know, it, it, it's um, I'm, it's been very interesting, Tom, because I've been very lucky through my career to work with. I do engineer myself at home with great help from other people, but I went, my career was working with like um, engineers like Mick Kozowski and uh, and uh, George Massenberg and Mike Shipley. So um, I think, in a way, I was I was living there, living through them, and I was learning a lot again at this late stage. But I have been very disciplined. I mean, I was, I'm a bit like Mutt Lang, you know, in the old days I would mix a song for four days. I'm finding at home here, I'm mixing a song, you know, for nearly a month. Um, but luckily I've kept my manager, Diane Poncher, who's been with me for 40 years, has been such a great uh, feedback for me and motivating me. And uh, you suddenly get quite excited because something you know is very, very special haunts you a little bit because you can tell it's special. There are a few songs on this record, this new album of mine, um, that I've really got to honour. And I mean, you don't usually say that kind of stuff because, you know, you're prolific and then you're you're firing things out to people. So this record is, has made me, uh, answering your question, yes, become disciplined. And I've been, you know, there's there's no excuses through this virus sometimes. There's no excuses to, to um, you know, uh, do the work that you need to do in the best way you can. So in some, I mean, it's a terrible thing. Um, we shouldn't be in this situation. We should be freer by now. But in some ways, I'm sure for the creative community, it's made them dig in, a, dig in quite deep into their art. Well, it's funny because one of the things when I was um, listening up, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into it in a little bit, but you, just before the zombie apocalypse, we'll call it, you started The Owl's Nest. Which is yeah, the radio show, yeah. Yeah, so Thank you have your own show where it's, it's sort of your podcast, your DJ, and you're playing your stuff. And one of the things I've been talking to all my writers and my friends about is just that, like, how are you acclimating and writing? How are you doing it, not face to face? How are you doing it on, you, uh, you know, uh, Zoom, whatever you know yeah. format you're using? And I was listening through to one of your uh, frequent collaborators on some of your biggest hits, uh, Mr. Bernie Toppin, and you were playing some unreleased demos and things, and you, you kept making a reference that you'd sit around and the facts would come through 
and the lyrics the have come through. So you sort of really have had practice at this this distance writing. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, it's, that's a very it's a very perceptive point there because I'd never done this kind of writing before. And when Bernie mm. Taupin was put forward to me in the eighties to write, I'd never done this before, where a person would just give you the lyrics, and that's the only way that Bernie wrote. And uh, but I fell into it straight away. I mean, it took all the pressure off. I mean, I think lyrics are the, for me personally are the hardest thing to. To, to get to and to really feel. Now, Bernie would just give you a sheet, just go, here you go, and uh, you sit down at the keyboard. And, and as I've seen with Elton, you don't really totally know what you're writing until yeah. after. I mean, we built the city to sort of flowed out and so did these dreams. And it was only after I had to try and make sense of it and what it was. But it's true. Um, I was lucky. People used to say to me right back in the um, 80s, how can you do this? How can you just write to a sheet of uh, uh, of lyrics but it worked it really really worked and of course um on the radio show my radio hours nest i do dig into tracks that nobody's ever heard that bernie and i have written and it brings back those memories um of yes i've been a recluse all my life <laughs> i've been a hermit yes it's true but i mean you know you you come out to fire up at certain times but i'm, I'm still incredibly i still believe in the sol the solitary um confinement of digging deep that's i mean I've, I've collaborated with so many people and in the early years that's what you had to do because you'd work with somebody like paul young who was an artist who wasn't a writer but you mm -hmm. knew you'd get the track on the album and in those days as uh, when you're a songwriter starting off you're looking at any way to get cuts but as the years went on um i started to feel and i and i dug more deep into my art which was you know what you hope to do after you've written the pop songs I found like solitude to me was very, very important. Even when I would work with other people, I know I don't want to take our time up, but if I was working with Maurice White and Earth, Wind and Fire, I'd, or anybody go west, I'd ask for a week on my own so that I could prepare ideas. So that when somebody comes in the room to work to me, we aren't just looking at each other and picking our noses. We're going, I say, I've got this idea. I've got that. I've got mm -hmm. a concept here. So I, I'm, I've always been a person that has to zip back, be on my own and then come forward after. Right. Well, it's it's funny. I when I set up collaborators, I usually try to set them up on lunch or a phone call first. I'm like, don't do the writing session right yes. away. A lot yes. of times, that lunch will immediately result in them running into the studio to yes. record. But that 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 base is there. I yes. really quickly because there's so much I want to talk about. But just since we're on those songs, um, you know, you've written a, you know what we call in publishing evergreens. The definition of evergreens in these two songs, uh, these dreams, and we built the city. I was I was really interested to learn either on your podcast or somewhere else I read. We built this city was originally looked at by the motels. Is that correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, um, those were the first two songs I wrote with Bernie. Uh, we built this city. These dreams wasn't called these dreams. It was called Boys in the Mist. It was given to me when he was testing me out to see if I was a writer he wanted to work with, and that was given to Stevie Nicks at first, and she wasn't wow. in the capacity or the mood to do it. And so he gave me these dreams. Well, you know, I found that the bridge just sung good when I wrote. I mean, I wrote that song in ten minutes. Not very unusual, um, but um, you know, when you when you when you really think about it, a lot of it is just what you've been building up to all your life. You know, I've been writing and in bands up to that point. Suddenly, you meet the right collaborator, and uh, who would have thought? We, I mean, we built the city two years ago. It was number one in England again at Christmas. I mean, although it was, we built. Uh, we built the city on sausage rolls done by, <laughs> done by a lad baby who seems to be which is company. how i've always heard it 
Yeah, no, I'll tell you a funny thing here is, um, you know, they, they, Diane, my manager, sent it to me and said, what do you think? I was like, oh, yeah, it's okay. You know, I mean, we get these cuts. It's all right. Then, of course, my cousin says it's nearly number one in England. So we had to call Bernie and say, Bernie, you know, the music's the same, but how do you feel about We Built This City on Sausage Rolls? And he said, I'm fine with it. It's the song that never stops giving. Uh, so... Uh, you know, you never realize, do you? You know, I mean, you're, you, you wrote, I wrote, we built the city in these dreams quite quickly together. And to still be talking about it now, you know, uh, in the old people's home here, it's, it's quite, it's quite, it's just, you know, it's mind boggling, really, because I can, my neighbors, you know, I've, I bought this house so that I could put a studio, it was a studio that meant everything to me if I could have a studio. But if I walk out and talk to my neighbours and they're going like, yeah, there's another Englishman moved into the town. Oh and I go like, well, I wrote We Built This City. They go, I love that song. <laughs> so it's like, it seems it's like that one song that, you know, it's been very rare that even I, you know, that I could, I've mentioned that song and people seem to all know it. So very, very, very fortunate, very lucky. But uh, to, to um, but you're right again. Uh, they became evergreens, but you never know when they're going to become evergreens. It's And I think they're one and two, one of the, easier songs to sing karaoke and we built the city it's really got that 76 trombones it's sort of got that thing where we get it and then you get a, these dreams which will just embarrass anybody who grabs the mic on that song to try to sing it. um you know this is this is a good point about the range in these dreams you know as i've got older you know it's your your octaves come down but when we first wrote that song and pushed it around kim Carnes wanted to record it and she made an attempt at it and she called me and said it's just too rangy it's too high right and right. uh you know and she passed on i was told later she'd passed on four number ones before that so within three weeks it was number one and she was like oh my goodness why did i <laughs> not try and sing higher you know but uh that's that's another thing you brought up there is uh, i think we built the city everybody can sing it like a good old english pub song and every <laughs> section of it is a bit of a sing-along so you're fortunate when you get those songs appearing Right. And going back to what you just said, the 10 minute song, it, 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 you said that's unusual for you. Does that, but that yeah. one really came out in 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I talk about this a lot because songwriters ask about it, but when I wrote Fallen Angel with Robbie Robertson and he was working at the village and I used to be doing ideas here, then taking it to him, that took a year, a year to finish that song before it was defined that it was going to be a song about Richard Manuel from the, uh, from the band. But uh, on these dreams, I literally put the sheet up and I just started to jam like I do on chords. And I called my manager in 10 minutes and played it in the old days down the phone as I was playing it. And I said, something feels quite good about this. Um, of course, the lyrics are already written there. You know, there are the lyrics. I just moved them around. I was nervous when I called Bernie because I'd, I'd only work, worked with him for about a week. And I said, do you mind if I move your lyrics around? <laughs> and he was going, no, mate, that's what Elton does all the time. So... Uh, and we, you know, but yes, songs to me either take 20 minutes, 15, an hour, three lifetimes. There's no rhyme or reason to it. Is So has it been that way through your career? Yes. You don't know. Yes. So is it, do you do you feel like you're, you're, you're always hit by the same muse and the same one you've been hit on through your old career? Or are there different, when the inspiration strikes, is it like, can you tell you're like, I'm going to pour this song out as you're starting it? Is it right away or is it? But, you know, it, again, again, Tom, I mean, it's very, very, very hard. There, there is a tingle that happens if you're fighting for, a, I'm so, no songwriters will get this. If you're fighting for a chord structure and you're singing, and I tend to jam, it's, I do work organically. I don't work technically. I don't know where I'm going to start a song. And it's, right. it could be from a rhythm. It could be from a title. It could be just from finding chords and a sound. But all, sometime in that 
procedure, you either want to commit suicide and give up and walk <laughs> away or grow a beard like you've got. You know, you go you go through these things. <laughs> or you go, you get this little tingle and you go, ah, just those few moments, those seconds, that movement between those chords and what I sang um, is special. So you do get little tingles and little signposts. Um, but whenever I've had to sit down, and somebody has said, write this like the Pointer Sisters, write this like, you know, Robbie Williams. It's it's a part of crap because you're 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 not flowing from um, a spiritual place. And I think even the most commercial and uh, popular songs, uh, the best of them come from a spontaneous spiritual side. I still believe that music is a very mystical thing. Another thing I, I, I love learning about you that I didn't know. So as as an artist, um, I'm try to get through as much as I can with yeah. Hugh Hill. Dancing in Heaven, specifically regionally here in Los Angeles, was a huge hit on KROQ. Yeah. You're an artist. You're in a band. You have a big hit. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong in how I heard the story. You get hit up by Maurice White, who says, this is the direction I want Earth, Wind, and Fire to go. Yeah, and it's I'm a bit right. like that. I mean, Maurice, uh, I miss him now. He went too early. But he, um, mm -hmm. he even writes it in his biography that he'd heard Dancing in Heaven. Um, and, it, and he knew that there was an energy there. Um, that was when the music was changing in the 80s because my band q -Phil, was very much like Ultravox, Tom Dolby, Thompson Twins. We played synthesizers. We played Fairlights. We were the new edge coming in and we understood drum machines. So obviously, Earth, Wind & Fire were thinking we have to understand a bit of that. Maurice was such a great visionary. So, um, yeah, his management company, and again, my manager, Diane Pontru, was with Bob Cavallo then, who managed Prince, managed Ray Parker, managed Earth, Wind & Fire. Um, they they said, uh, would you like to sit with Maurice and have a chat with him? And of course, um, oh no, no, I don't, I don't fancy that. Of course, I was there in a second, and we st and I just got on with Maurice. And as soon as I mentioned that my father worked for British Aerospace and UFOs are real, Maurice White said, "You're in the band. <laughs> you're in the band. Even though you're white, you're in the band." And uh, <laughs> he said, "Go away and uh, write a song for me." And I went away and got a little Fostex eight track because I hadn't settled in LA. My manager put me up in the living room. I put a little studio together and I wrote Magnetic for him. And then we went on and ca carried on working. And that was on uh, Electric Nation when the band was breaking up, really. But, um, yeah, it's the Q-Phil record, Dancing in Heaven, only really broke underground in L.A., I think, in Minneapolis. People think it was a top ten record, you know, but it was absolutely underground, but big in L.A. Yeah, and so that was a yeah. it was a calling card. It was a passport to a lot of my work in LA because of the energy and because synthesizers and technology uh, was changing in America. You know, the we arrived in bands like the Eagles and um, Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young would have dis disliked us because we were bringing a, a different form of writing in. So mm -hmm. I couldn't have come at a better time, Tom, into LA. Couldn't have come. Had it, a lot of luck with that. Yeah. That's what brought you to LA. Was that the yes. catalyst to get you here? That's and right. was that all the, also the catalyst to make you a collaborator? Had you thought you'd be a, a songwriter at that point for others? Is that, was that um, a goal or were you a band guy? I, I'm a fanatic for, um, records when I grew up. They were my best friends. So 45 vinyls, I lived off of records. I never did any schooling in England because my father was always being sent to America to work with British Aerospace. So I was off in Savannah, Charleston, South Carolina, offbeat places where they were testing the Harrier jump jet. So I was missing my friends. So I just fell into studying everything on record. I had Selling England by the Pan by Genesis. I could play it all the way through. Jethro Tull, The Funk, Parliament, uh, Slander Family Stone. And so deep down, I was becoming a songwriter without knowing it through the records. 
I became a bass player back in England because I love the funk. And then I realized as a bass player in a band that we couldn't get a deal, even how good we looked or how good we played. It was about the songs. And so in my mind, I thought it's about songwriting. So I made a, con a concise effort to study keyboards, chordal and harmonic work. I don't read music. I, I feel it. But I did learn my scales and I learned how songs were built. Um, and I listened to Elton John's work a great deal because I thought his... Uh, piano work was very orchestral and uh, had a had a depth in 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 the way he wrote. So um, although I was a band member, uh, I do feel like in my bones I was going to go searching for what the song was. The power is the song. You know, I wouldn't be talking to you now, Tom, if uh, if it wasn't about songs. You know, it's uh, it's not about how good you play the bass or anything. It's about where the song comes. What was fascinating to me was all my heroes, the American players. Earth, Wind & Fire, the Commodores, you know, the great bass players, Abe Laborio, the musicians, Jerry Hay. Once, and I, we were, I was thrown into the rooms with them, and it was like, oh, my God, I've got their records. And as um, soon as they heard the song that I'd written, there was ultimate respect. And so I really felt like my power is that I'm bringing in the, uh, the spark for them all to do their thing on, you know. Um, and they gave me ultimate respect without being a trained musician or anything or an arranger. That they would, they would. The song was, song was my handshake. You know what I mean? Right. Well, and I, I want to jump now very quickly because this is going so fast. But you just had a song. We talked about you've been working with Robbie Williams for a while. That was one of yeah. the things we talked about. I really, I'm really a fan of his. And uh, you have a song, "The Big Goodbye," that's a Ronan Keating song with Robbie singing on it, and it just entered the Billboard charts at number two. But, yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah, 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 yeah. It was. It has uh, the, the album entered the English charts at number two. Yeah, but there's a but there's a big buzz about the song "The Big Goodbye" because um, it relates to a member, uh, Ronan Keaton. You know, I didn't really know too much about this. I was working with Robbie, but Ronan Keaton was in the band Boy Zone, and um, Stephen Gately was one of their members who passed away. And when Robbie Williams wrote the words to the music I'd written, uh, he aimed it towards that kind of um, emotion. And then Ronan Keaton heard it uh, along down, down recently. He recorded it with, with Robbie doing a duet. And, you know, they're talking about it a lot in England because there's a, uh, it's about, you know, losing a, losing a member, a, a great friend. So the big goodbye. Um, yeah, it's, you know, I wrote that with Robbie quite a time ago, but we always believed in it. And then uh, through Robbie's connection to Ronan Keating and Boyzone and all that stuff, uh, a big cut in England, which is really nice because, uh, you know, you're... Um, you can see young people finding still your material. You know, the big, the big goodbye is an emotional song. Um, although I joke about it that I, when I wrote Fallen Angel, it was for Richard, you know, it turned into a really a funeral song for Richard Manuel. And here I am writing another song, another funeral song for another band. I thought maybe I should work at a funeral parlor and just say, I've got a song for you here. Um, but, you know, it's the emotional content. And what I what I did find good for me was that the big goodbye was chosen from that album as um, the most emotional piece that he wanted to take on the road. So, you know, I think that's that's for where I am in my career, where I'm at my age. It's nice to have that tangent where you're still touching a pop, a pop and a young market, but you're and you're also um, still bringing out your own um, your own art in your own in your own way. Well, the one thing that came across from you instantly when we met is you obviously have no choice. There's no free will left as to what you do. You just, you're a songwriter. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and your enthusiasm for it is literally the definition of infectious. And I just love that. Oh, thank you. You're finding these wonderful collaborators who, who share that and seem to be people with similar 
uh, similar drives, and I just I just love the that this song is being received so well overseas, and I hope it. Yeah, I think I think I played it. To you. I think I played yeah. it to you at the office there. Yeah, at the Concord office, and I've gone and we just, Yeah, of, yeah. There's demos up now. There's lyric videos. Yeah, it all, it all happens too fast. Actually, you know, it's funny. I made the demo. And uh, and then it was on YouTube, and I thought, how the hell did I get on YouTube before I finished it? You know, it's like <laughs> you you have to look over your shoulder and you go, I'm not sure if the fridge is sending these these songs out, but they, it happens so fast. I mean, I I have alter um, alter ego bands, and I put things out on on i you know on iTunes and YouTube for fun, and let me, let me do all the different styles because I I like a lot of different music, and I mean it, bang, it's there, bang, there's a video of it. Bang! It's in Germany somewhere, and you go like, "It was not like that in my day." It moves very fast. I love it. We're going to move to our lightning round here in a second, but very quickly, do you have a just a, any word of advice you would give to a songwriter out there right now during these times? I think we probably talked about it, Tom. Is that you? You have to if you have that that thing inside you that you cannot not do it. That it's and that's what I did have. I can't imagine not doing it. Um, I think if you recognize that that's inside you, here is the time to even more uh, focus on it because there are no excuses now. You know, it's uh, you you are forced to be at home. You are forced to be with yourself and to concentrate and uh, on things that you possibly would find excuses for. But my, my thing has always been, you know, when they ask you about what does a songwriter need, I would say that naive um, passion. It's the word passion that this is all you can do. And if they took it away from you, you would not be happy. It's about happiness. Even though it's hard to write songs and you fail more than you win, it's about, like, I, I get a lot of joy from this. And even after all the years I've been doing it, um, I still get the tingles. So I love it. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's great great to be with you and Concord again because we've just done a deal again. I'm so excited. I know we finally so got to Now, Laura yes. and Lucy, our producers, are guessing we're in our lightning round. So I'm going to reach into Sammy Davis Jr.'s hat, which is I'll explain really in a few sure? It absolutely is. Oh, okay. It absolutely is. And we're going to go questions, just like word association. Oh, you never told me about this. This is the surprise. Ready? Go. Martin Page, first celebrity crush. What, my, my celebrity crush? Yeah. Oh, my God. Peter Gabriel, still. Okay. Most uh, influential person in your life you are not related to? Diane Poncher, my manager. Fantastic. All right. If you had to choose one animal to help you win a fight, what animal would you choose? Oh, cats. Cats? I'm a cat fanatic. I love cats. I'll meet yeah. you in the back alley with my dog. Uh, <laughs> what movie would be greatly improved if made into a musical? Oh, my God. Into a musical? Yeah. And it would be greatly improved? The Revenant. The Revenant. Because it's going to be impossible to do. <laughs> I like the way you think. What would be the <laughs> coolest animal to scale up to the size of a horse? I think I know the answer. Now, you know what I'd say, but I'll say skunk. I've got a couple of skunks in my background. I think In my backyard. They're beautiful. I love their tails. I'd like to see a big one of those. <laughs> uh, if you could travel back in time, what period would you go to? The Romantic Era with Byron, Shelley, and Keats. The Romantic Period. Well, this might segue nicely into this. What's the most embarrassing thing you've ever worn? <laughs> ah, Dancing in Heaven. Uh, I wore an American football uh, gear when we were doing the Eurovision Song Contest in England. It's on YouTube, and it's uh, revolting. Revolting. Okay, we're going to go. Okay, it's a three-part question. 
One movie, one record, one book, Desert Island. One of each. You can only take, we're leaving now. Okay, so the one movie. Yep. I'll say the sound of music because I love the I love the songs and the sound of music. Then it's one book. One book. Um, the poetry of Pablo Neruda, the Chilean poet. And what else is it? One album. One album. Um, I want to make that too. I'm going to cheat. Abbey Road by the Beatles and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John and Selling England by the Pound by Genesis Three. <laughs> What's the funniest joke you know by heart? Come on. Oh my God! Yeah. I don't know any jokes. I really, I really don't. It would be useless. I would say the biggest joke is listening to my early demos. That would be probably the funniest <laughs> thing. But no, I'm not. Yeah, I'd have to be in the pub with a couple of drinks to remember a good joke. Okay, the next version of this. How many are there? How many? <laughs> Let's see. Uh, uh, what is the most beautiful place you've ever been, Martin? The Huntington Gardens in Pasadena. Very good that's answer. Where I, that's where I go regularly when uh, and I write there. So that's my favorite place. Of I would agree. Uh, yeah. Ask permission or beg forgiveness? Beg forgiveness. Do you believe in love at first sight? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I write these romantic songs. No way. <laughs> it takes about five years to realize that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, who's a celebrity you admire and why? Um, a celebrity, I, I, I admire Sting. I think Sting has kept his career right through the uh, the, the uh, era of uh, the police and kept his head together and done many different projects. So I do think that Sting's got his uh, crap together. Yeah, Sting has got his crap together. Is going to be the pull quote from the <laughs> uh, what movie scared you? What movie scared you as a kid? Actually, Lawrence of Arabia, when the bloke got shot and, he's, and, the, and you see him on the, on the desert and the blood starts coming out of his head in the sunshine. And I thought, as a kid, I thought, I don't like all that blood dripping. So that hit me first. Then The Shining. Those are both terrifying. All right, last question. What personality trait has gotten you in the most trouble? Being a soccer player. I grew up as a professional soccer player as a kid. And I have an aggressive tendency because I'm tall and... Southampton and I played center half so as a kid I got into lots of fights on the soccer field don't fight with Martin Page everybody Martin we're gone in 30 minutes that's thank all you, the time brother. we got thank you brother we'll Absolutely see you again. fantastic I'll see you next time and we'll uh we'll be in person next time we'll be in person at the pub playing soccer you got it buddy boy thanks everybody see ya, see ya. this show was presented by Craft Recordings thanks for joining us for gone in 30 minutes Produced by Laura Sias. I'm your host, Tom, and we'll catch you next time.